We're back again. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh. We're here to give part five of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, where today we're going to tackle the next five chapters in the novel, which will include The Ring Goes South, all the way through the chapter, The Mirror of Galadriel. I know last week we kind of detailed the differences between part one of the film and part one of the novel. Had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, you know, now we're you know, jumping ship, getting right back into the swing of things on the novel side of stuff. And, you know, there's some big, big moments that happen here today. One, I think possibly the climax of the first novel happens, uh, you know, in a couple chapters before we get started in here. And, you know, really excited to cover that. I know it's one of Chase's favorite moments, so he's going to kind of take us through that part a little bit here. And, you know, before we get started with, you know, detailing the big takeaways from each of the next five chapters here, I'll let Chase say a few words and then we'll get rolling. The action is here now. <laughs> We've waited a long time, sir. Finally, we got a little bit of action the last two episodes. And now, you know, this is kind of starting to get to the top of the mountain of the first book here. So and it only gets better from here, which is great, especially when we get into the second book. And when Josh takes us to the climax there, that's that's a beast of its own. But yeah, man, got a lot to cover today. Let's get it rolling. Sounds like a plan. Let's go ahead and put the uh, glasses in the air, and we're going to cheers to the climax of the Fellowship of the Ring here in the novel today. It's going to be a good one. Looking forward to taking this on through it, and uh, all the twists and turns and surprises we're going to find. So, cheers, brother. Cheers, brother. All right. And before we jump into the next five chapters, if this is your first time joining us, let me go ahead and give you a quick little recap about where we left off in the novel two weeks ago, because like I guess mentioned last week, we talked a little bit about the differences between the novel and the film. So two weeks ago in the novel, we were talking about uh, the chapters A Knife in the Dark through the Council of Elrond. And some of the big things that happened there, obviously Frodo got stabbed by a Morgul blade and it was kind of in and out of consciousness, almost didn't make it. In the novel, uh, an elf called Glorfindel shows up and helps get him across the ford. They get to Rivendell and they end up saving Frodo's life. They have a big little meeting there about what they're going to do going forward. And they decide they're going to destroy the ring. Frodo himself says he's going to take the ring. And what's kind of cool here, uh, and you know, we obviously did the differences between the movie last week and we're going to do it again for part two and uh, two weeks from today. There's a, the part where like they don't actually tell you right off the bat who's going to be going with Frodo in the novel yet. We actually find that out here today where in the movie it actually shows in part one like the whole fellowship in one last scene before it uh, it closes out in, in the film. So uh, that kind of is why we're jumping in here today. We're going to start off on The Ring Goes South and just a few little things I took away from this chapter. Like this is one of those chapters again that it's very, uh, you know, but we have some of the moments where it drags a little bit where it's just a lot of detail, nothing that's really important to the plot line, but there are a few things that I kind of took away from this chapter this is where you know they're making their final plans to leave Rivendell and take the ring south I will say that you, you do find out eventually that you know it, it was kind of cool is in the book if it's easy to miss but Pippin and Mary weren't originally meant to go on this journey with the rest of the fellowship they wanted Mary and Pippin to go back to the Shire and warn the Shire folk and have them get prepared as possible 
as they could. And then Elrond was going to send uh, some of his you know elves to go with, like two of his elves to go with him instead. Until like Merry and Pippin basically told him, like, well, you're going to have to put us in chains and, and lock us up or tie us in a sack and throw us back to the Shire because you know we're going to follow him. And so he's just like, all right, fine, go ahead and go with him. And so, yeah, we've got nine people of the Fellowship of the Ring. They call it the company a little bit here in the novel. So to kind of detail who that is, we've got Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Boromir, Sam, Merry, Pippin, and Frodo. Those are the nine of the Fellowship of the Ring. They decide they're going to take it south and destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom. And, you know, to kind of go on from there, there's a there's one part I thought was pretty interesting that I had a big takeaway here in this chapter, was that if you guys remember, it's very easy to forget, especially with how long it's been since both the novels and the films have come out. The sword... Of like 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 Elendil's sword, Narsil, was actually remade here in this chapter, and Aragorn takes it, it made brand new from here in Rivendell, where it doesn't even come up until I believe it's the return of the king in the films, and he ends up being like given it like in a different way, and I'm not gonna give it away because we'll get there when we get there, but I just thought that that was really interesting. Like it's easy to forget that that sword was actually remade this early on in the process, and he actually took the sword that was remade here from Rivendell right in the first book. And I just thought that was pretty cool. I'm actually going to go ahead and, and read that little passage here. It's in, in my book, it's on page 310. Again, I don't know uh, what it's going to be in other people's books, but I'll just go ahead and read the passage. It says, The sword of Elendil was forged anew by Elvish smiths, and on its blade was traced a device of seven stars set between the crescent moon and the rayed sun. And about them was written many runes, for Aragorn, son of Arathorn, was going to war upon the marches of Mordor. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun shone readily in it, and the light of the moon shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen. And Aragorn gave it a new name and called it Anduriel, Flame of the West. So that's a little bit there about that sword and how they already got it. It's remade, it's ready to go to battle. thought that was pretty cool. Another big takeaway I had from this chapter is Bilbo gives Frodo two really important gifts. He gives him a sword called Sting, and he also gives him a chainmail of Mithril, which we'll find out a little bit about the value of that, I believe, in the next chapter, uh, or the chapter following, possibly. But those are two really important gifts that Bilbo gives Frodo. And then the last thing I'm really just going to take away from this chapter that I thought was important in the storyline is that they try to uh, like traverse the mountain of Cataras and it ends up turning them away. And it, it, it almost seems as if the mountain itself was against them saying like the snow was coming down very unnaturally and it got so heavy and held like it fell so hard that it ended up going above like the hobbit's head and if they didn't have the people with them they probably would have suffocated and died in the snowfall uh but there was they were trying to do everything except go through a certain way like they want to make sure that they left every other path like uh you know try to get through it that way instead of going where they end up going and they're going to find out for good reason why they didn't want to go through where they ended up going and so that was the biggest last thing I took away. The, you know, the mountain just proved too much for them. Also, we got to see a little bit about the strength of Boromir and Aragorn because it said they kind of created a path through the snow themselves without even using any sort of tools. They just used like their arms and limbs and like knocked the snow out of the way. And you know, this snow is about you know three feet, four feet high. If it's over the Hobbit says, it's pretty pretty <laughs> impressive that they were to kind of do that. And I also thought it was kind of cool. It said like Legolas was able to lightfootedly jump and like run across the snow as if it was just regular land. And they ended up finding like where the snow came down and it, and it also led to like the the belief that it was unnaturally attacking the the company there so 
that's the kind of last takeaway I had from that chapter of The Ring Goes South, and I'll turn it over to Chase to give some of his takeaways from it. Yeah, no, you hit pretty much all of them. Uh, just a couple takeaways here. Uh, one of the big ones that I thought is a lot of people think there are, those wraiths were drowned uh, that we talked about in Flight of the Ford, and they weren't, and Gandalf confirms this. Uh, it's on page 286 in my book. It could be different in yours. But uh, just the fifth paragraph here, he says, You cannot destroy ring, ring, ring wraiths like that, said Gandalf. The power of their master is in them. They stand or fall by him. We hope they are all unhorsed and unmasked, and so made for a while less dangerous, but we find out for certain. In the meantime, <clears throat> you should try and forget your troubles, Frodo. I do not know if I can do anything to help you, but I will whisper this in your ears. Someone said that intelligence would be needed in the party. He was right. I think I shall come with you. The next page, this one paragraph, he talks about that. And this is on paragraph two. He says, eight of the nine are accounted for, at least, said Gandalf. It is rash to be sure, yet I think that we may hope now that ringwraiths were scattered and have been obliged to return as best as they could to their master in Mordor, empty and shapeless. And I just think that's a big point because uh, a lot of people, especially if you've seen the films, they until they get kind of, you know, to the next movie there, and uh, some people haven't read the books, they just assume, based on Flight to the Ford, that those wraiths were destroyed, and they weren't. Um, quick takeaway here. You mentioned the chainmail really well that Bilbo gave him, uh, but I thought this was cool. It is the one that Thorin gave him. So this was a reference back to The Hobbit that we didn't cover here, but it's kind of cool that it's been passed down. I did, uh, you know, Legolas is my guy, so one thing that's cool is he had this, like, long white elven knife <laughs> that is actually you can see that in the movie a good bit um and then gandalf's staff uh and elven sword his elven sword is called glamdring so i think that's really cool because people talk about gandalf's staff a lot but people forget you know kind of the artifacts and weapons i guess that gandalf uses uh are kind of special in their own way too almost like how aragorn and boromir use theirs so just a couple uh, uh, takeaways there. And then the last one, you already mentioned this, but Gandalf just says a little bit in passing that there is another path that they can take, um, but they only want to go that way unless there's no other way. And that's all my takeaways there, man. Yeah, and to talk a little bit about what you said with Gandalf's sword, his sword actually makes a big, big, has a big moment here in the climatic chapter. Uh, and uh, you know it, we also know obviously it's elf, elven made so it's stronger than regular steel and uh, it's, it's it has a pretty cool moment coming up and we'll we'll be sure to make sure we detail that uh, in its entirety but no that was a great great pickup there uh, yeah so we kind of go into the next chapter a journey in the dark I thought there was a couple there was a few bigger things that happened in this chapter than that happened in the last one uh, I thought that this was a really cool foreshadowed moment. On my, on my book here, it's on page 333. It says, uh, this is like when they talk about end up having to go to this other path that they didn't want to go to unless there was no other way. This is what Aragorn says, and it kind of foreshadows a little bit about um, what happens to Gandalf. Not going to give anything away just yet, but it says, uh, I will, said Aragorn heavily. You followed my lead almost to disaster in the snow, and you have said no word of blame. I will follow your lead now. 
if this last warning does not move you. It is not of the ring, nor of us, that I am thinking now, but of you, Gandalf. And I say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware. So that was a really cool foreshadowed moment that I wanted to detail there because, uh, you know, stuff's going to come up pretty soon. Also, like a wolf pack started to hunt them on the way to Moria. And it got to the point where one of the lead wolves went to attack them by itself when they were covered by like the, the circle of rocks. And we got to see a little bit about Legolas and how he has this really great you know, sense of sight because they attacked him almost in the dark and he shot one bow and it came right through the throat of the lead wolf and killed it pretty much instantly. And then in the morning, uh, almost like in retribution, all the rest of the wolves attacked them. And we got to see a little bit about like the battle skills of everybody and what something really cool Gandalf did, you know, kind of set fire in the sky and it lit the, the tree line up and it was really cool. Uh, and they finally scattered the wolves and, you know, they got away from that danger there. But, you know, that, that's one part that, you know, the, the films actually don't have at all, you know, them getting attacked by the wolves. So it's just really, really interesting there. It's very easy to forget if it's been a long time since you read the novel. So definitely a big takeaway I had in that end. Um, on top of that, after the the, uh, the wolf pack incident, they finally end up getting to the doors of Moria, and there's something with like these tentacles. After Boromir throws a stone into this lake, and they had this weird feeling about the lake the whole time that hey, don't disturb this thing. That this seems like very foreboding. But tentacles grab Frodo and try to pull him into the lake, and Sam cuts at them to free Frodo. And so they end up getting inside the doors of Moria after like they figure out the password. It was like a little riddle there. It's like speak friend and enter, and Gandalf says the elvish word for friend and the doors finally open but yeah then the tentacles like a grab frodo like i was saying and then uh they get, end up getting inside the doors and the tentacles end up grabbing the sides of the doors that just open and smash them closed and and bar their way out with boulders and pulling the trees down making it so they can't escape through the way they just came in so whatever this creature was in this lake kind of you know set them upon their fate that you guys are going to moria there's no turning back now like this is you're you're there now you're in you're in it for the long haul so i thought that was pretty important also we learn that elf blades shine with a cold light if orcs are nearby not only with sting uh frodo sword but also with uh gandalf sword that chase was mentioning and as they're going through moria they they come through a lot of twists and turns and frodo thinks that he hears the soft following footsteps behind them that aren't really an echo of their own and it's kind of following them a bit but he doesn't kind of raise that concern which is funny because the film is a bit different uh Yandalf actually has a conversation with Frodo about about it and I'm not going to give it away here but uh from there they're trying to figure out the ways to go Gandalf's got to do some thinking it's like you know basically making a way through a big maze of of backtracking because when last Gandalf entered Moria he went from the other side uh, you know, like from the west to the east. Now he's going. I'm sorry, from the uh, east to the west. Now he's going from west to the east, and uh, it was like he had to try to figure out which were the the right ways. And he ended up getting him to this uh, this room. And this is a pretty important part here. Uh, learned to, we find out that Balin, which was like that that dwarf lord that no one had heard from from 30 years, like, like that no one had heard a word or whisper from it. They ended up being dead the whole time. There was the, the the little tombstone there, and it had like the writings on it. And we'll learn a little bit more about that in this coming chapter. But those are the big takeaways I had for this chapter here. Again, the chapter called "A Journey in the Dark." I'll turn it over to you, and then you tell me what ones you took away from that. 
Yeah, man. And uh, you, uh, <clears throat> you nailed it on that. I mean, I only have one uh, takeaway other than that, and it's really not that important. I just thought it was a funny moment because it shows how dumb Pippin is, and Gandalf, my boy, gets pissed. So I'm going to read this part. It's only a couple paragraphs, but I thought it was really funny. And I thought they played this out well in the movie, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. This is when they're going through that chamber. Pippin acting like an idiot. It's like knocking all the shit over. But it says, Pippin felt curiously attracted by the well, while the others were unrolling blankets and making beds against the walls of the chamber as far as possible from the hole in the floor. He crept to the edge and peered over. A chill air seemed to strike his face. Rising from invisible depths, moved by sudden impulse, he groped for a loose stone and let it drop. He felt his heart beat many times before there was any sound, and far below, as if a stone had fallen into deep water in some cavernous place, there came a plunk, very distant but magnified and repeated in the hollow shaft. "'What's that?' cried Gandalf. He was relieved when Pippin confessed what he had done, but he was angry, and Pippin could see his eye glinting. "'Fool of a toque!' he growled. "'This is a serious journey, not a hobbit walking party!' Throw yourself in next time. Then you will be no further nuisance. Now be quiet. Thought <laughs> that was just great. Uh, and it even goes on to describe how basically like Pippin felt so bad. Like Gandalf was like, just get some rest. <laughs> but he was pissed, man. And they uh, play that out really well in the <laughs> really well in the film. But imagine how pissed he is. <laughs> Throw yourself in while you're at it next time. So that was just my one takeaway there, man. It wasn't important, but it's sometimes those small funny moments are uh, are a nice laugh. So uh, yeah, and I'll I'll let you uh, cut back to we're kind of getting into some big moments here, man. Good stuff, chapter five. Yeah, I'll get back. I'll get inside in just a second, but I do want to backtrack and talk a little bit about this uh, mithril thing because. I mentioned that that was a little bit important. In this chapter, we actually get to figure out that's what Balin was doing. He was trying to dig deep for Mithril because we figure out that uh, it's worth like 10 times gold. Uh, so Mithril is, is, is a very valuable, I don't know what to call it, like substance or, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's like a, a gemstone or anything like that, but like it's a, it's a very valuable. Um, Whatever you want to call it. So basically, let me go ahead and describe Mithril for everybody. It says, uh, all folks desired it. It could have been beaten like copper and polished like glass, and the dwarves could make of it a metal light and yet harder than tempered steel. Its beauty was like that of common silver, but the beauty of Mithril is that it did not tarnish or grow dim. The elves dearly loved it, and among many uses, they made it Ithildin, Star Moon, which you saw upon the doors. Bilbo had a corslet of Mithril rings that Thorin gave him. I wonder what has become of it. Gathering dust still in um, Mitchell Delving Matham's house, I suppose. And what? cried Gimli, stark out of his silence. A corslet of Moria silver? That was a kingly gift. Yes, said Gandalf. I never told him, but its worth was greater than the value of the entire Shire and everything in it. So that little that little piece of uh, <laughs> chain mail that Bilbo gave him was worth more than the entire Shire and everything that's in it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of what has it there. And this is another part talking about the, the value of it. It says, The wealth of Moria was not in gold and jewels, the toys of dwarfs, nor in iron, their servant. Such things that they found here, it is true, especially iron, but they did not need to delve for them. All things that they desired, they could obtain in traffic. For here alone in the world was found Moria silver, or true silver, as some have called it. Mithril is the elvish name. 
The dwarves have a name for which they do not tell. Its worth was ten times that of gold, and now it is beyond that price, for little of it is left above the ground. So that's, again, just to really detail the importance and why almost kind of this makes a little bit more sense of why Balin was, you know, maybe doing some things he shouldn't do, digging a little bit deeper than was, uh, than was necessary because he awakened something that we're going to, you know, come into here. And it ends up, you know, leading to his doom and the doom of all dwarves that were in Moria. So I thought that was pretty important there to kind of d discuss the importance of Mithril and what it meant to the dwarves and, you know, how important it is to the rest of the outside world, too, and how highly they think of it. And now, you know, Frodo and Bilbo give him that, that whole thing. He's got one piece of chainmail worth more than the entire Shire and everything in it. So I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, now kind of going into the next chapter here, the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. Uh, this is where we kind of figure out everything that happens. There's this book inside that room that Gandalf does his best to read, but part of it's like charred and burned and smudged in places. And so uh, what it ends, what this book ends up being, it ends up being like a, almost like a documentary of what was happening in real time as the dwarves were being attacked by the orcs and the other monsters that were coming from the depths of Moria. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I can you know, read a little bit of it there because I guess it, it does kind of play a big role in what comes after them here in just a second. So I don't mind kind of just going ahead and reading the, like, the very last parts of it. But it says, um, this is like towards the end, it says, we cannot get out. We cannot get out. They have taken the bridge and second hall. Frere and Loni and Nolly fell there. Then there were four lines smeared so that I can only read went five days ago. The last lines run. The pool is up to the wall at Westgate. The watcher in the water took Oin. We cannot get out. The end comes. And then drums. Drums in the deep. They are coming. And that was the end of like what that, that book was. And I thought it was kind of cool because then they start kind of hearing the drums on their own here uh then and i think the movie did a really good job with that part there as well they, they did different mm -hmm. words when they used it but the same sort of effect is like it gave you that chill to the bone of like oh the drums and all of a sudden you hear the drums out of nowhere and it's like oh shit we're in trouble now uh but i also thought it was pretty cool that gandalf made gimli take that book it's called the book of mazarbul and he wanted him to take it back to dane if he got the chance once their journey is over so he could learn a little bit about everything that happened so I thought that was pretty interesting. Then, you know, we get the one of the big... The climax is, is coming here now. We got orcs attacking. Gandalf shied his light and was able to see, like, a big cave troll as well. And, you know, they tried to close off the door the best they could. There was another door leading out from that room that they could go to, but they didn't want to retreat right away. They wanted to kind of draw as many as they could into that one spot so they wouldn't, you know, follow from other angles. It was a good tactical move, the best that they had in the, you know, with what they were given. But this like cave troll's arm, Boromir tried to bar the door, but this cave troll's arm like burst through it, and you know Boromir tries to hack at it. And I thought this was really cool, really an interesting piece of this, that you know Boromir's like a strong guy, and he hacked at this cave troll's arm with all he had, and it actually ended up notching the sword. Like it didn't affect the cave troll's arm at all, but it like put a big like dent in his sword, fucked it up. And then what this, why this is also important is because something came over Frodo where he felt he needed to attack as well. And he takes Sting and he stabs the troll's foot and like it actually penetrates the troll's foot with Sting, the sword there. So it kind of leads to the uh, evidence that what the elves use with their swords are a little bit stronger than man-made forged swords. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, he ended up being able to, you know, that the troll's foot was like bleeding and ended up retreating out of there. And they, they were able to bar the door just for a little bit. Uh, 
then the, the, there's like the calls like the, the orc chieftain. So it's interesting because in the film it ends up being the big cave troll that stabs Frodo with the spear. But in in this actual novel, it's an orc chieftain that spears Frodo in his side. And actually, someone ends up uh, hitting Sam in the top of the head with a weapon too, but not a, not a death blow there. But that was something that wasn't shown on screen. I thought that was pretty cool in this little battle scene there. So uh, the the like the Aragorn thought that. Frodo was dead. He thought he was like carrying like a dead hobbit, and Frodo was like, "I'm good. I can I can walk. I can run." And he was like really like shocked because uh, they didn't know that he was wearing the mithril chainmail, and that actually stopped the spear from penetrating him. So that was pretty cool. And then obviously, I'm not gonna go into this part. I'm gonna let Chase take it because it's his favorite part. But I'll just go ahead and detail that Gandalf makes his last stand against the this uh, really big evil that I will let Chase go ahead and, and detail out and. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and turn it over to him. Yeah, so I'll um, I am gonna read this part because it is really cool. But this it's what you've all been waited for: the Balrog, man, the Bel Balrog. Suddenly, Frodo saw before him a black chasm. At the end of the hall, the floor vanished and fell to an unknown depth. The outer door could only be reached by a slender bridge of stone without curb or rail that spanned the chasm with one curving spring of 50 feet. It was an ancient defense of the dwarves against any enemy that might capture the first hall in the outer passages. They could only pass across it in single file. At the brink, Gandalf halted, and the others came up in a pack behind. Lead the way, Gimli, he said. Pippin and Merry neck straight on, and up the stair beyond the door. Arrows fell among them. One struck Frodo and sprang back. Another pierced Gandalf's hat and stuck there like a black feather. Frodo looked behind. Beyond the fire, he saw swarming black figures. They seemed to be hundreds of orcs. They brandished spears and scimitars, which shone red as blood in the firelight. Doom, doom, rolled the drum beats, growing louder and louder. Doom, doom. Legolas turned and set an arrow to the string. Though it was a long shot for his small bow, he drew, but his hand fell, and the arrow slipped to the ground. He gave a cry of dismay and fear. Two great trolls appeared. They bore great slabs of stone and flung them down to serve as gangways over the fire. But it was not the trolls that had filled the elf with terror. The ranks of the orcs had opened, and they crowded away as if them, they themselves were afraid. Something was coming up behind them. What it was could not be seen. It was like a great shadow in the middle of which was dark form of man's shape, maybe yet greater, and a power and terror seemed to be in it, and to go before it. It came to the edge of the fire, and the light faded as if a cloud had been over it. Then with a rush it leapt across the fissure. The flames roared up to greet it and wreathed about it, and the black smoke swirled in the air. Its screaming man kindled and blazed behind it. In its right hand was a blade like a stabbing tongue of fire. In its left it held a whip of many thongs. Ay, ay, wailed Legolas. A Balrog, a Balrog is come. Gimli stared with wide eyes. Durin's bane, he cried. And letting his act fall, he covered his face. A Balrog, muttered Gandalf. Now I understand. He faltered and leaned heavily on his staff. Heavily on his staff. What an evil fortune. And I am already weary. The dark figure streaming with fire raced towards them. The orcs yelled and poured over the stone gangways. Then Boromir raised his horn and blew loud. The challenge rang and bellowed like the shout of many throats under 
cavernous roof. For a moment, the orcs quailed and the fiery shadow halted. Then the echoes died as suddenly as a flame blown out by a dark wind, and the enemy advanced again. Over the bridge, cried Gandalf, recalling his strength. Fly! This is a foe behind, beyond any of you. I must hold the narrow way. Fly! Aragorn and Boromir did not heed the command, but still held their ground side by side behind Gandalf at the far end of the bridge. The others halted just within the doorway at the hall's end and turned, unable to lead the leader to face the enemy alone. The Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on his staff in his left hand, but in the other hand, Glamdring gleamed cold and white his enemy halted again facing him and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings it raised the whip and the thongs whined and cracked fire came from its nostrils but gandalf stood firm you cannot pass he said the orc stood still and a dead silence fell i am a servant of the secret fire wielder of the flame of anor you cannot pass the dark fire will not avail you Flame of Udun, go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. The Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall. But still Gandalf could be seen, glimmering in the gloom. He seemed small and altogether alone, gray and bent like a wizened tree. Before the onset of a storm, from out of the shadow, a red sword leaped, flaming. Glamdring glittered white in answer. There was a ringing clash and a stab of white fire. The Balrog fell back and its sword flew up in molten fragments. The wizard swayed on the bridge, stepped back at pace, and then again stood still. You cannot pass, he said. With a bound, the Balrog leaped full upon the bridge. Its whip whirled and hissed. He cannot stand alone, cried Aragorn suddenly and ran back along the bridge. Elendil, he shouted, I am with you, Gandalf, Gondor, cried Boromir and leaped after him. At that moment, Gandalf lifted his staff and crying aloud, he smote the bridge before him. The staff broke asunder and fell from his hand. A blinding sheet of white flame sprang up, the bridge cracked. Right at the Balrog's feet it broke and the stone upon which it stood crashed into the gulf. While the rest remained, poised, quivering like a tongue of rock, thrust out into emptiness. With a terrible cry, the Balrog fell forward, and its shadow plunged down and vanished. But even as it fell, swung its whip, and the thongs lashed and curled about the wizard's knees, dragging him to the brink. He staggered and fell, grasped vainly at the stone, and slid into the abyss. Fly, you fools, he cried, and was gone. The fires went out and blank darkness fell. The company stood rooted with horror, staring into the pit. Even as Aragorn and Boromir came flying back, the rest of the bridge cracked and fell. With a cry, Aragorn roused them. Come, I will lead you now, he called. We must obey his last command. Follow me. They stumbled wildly up the great stairs beyond the door, Aragorn leading Boromir at the rear. At the top was a wide, echoing passage. Along this, they fled. Frodo heard Sam at his side weeping, and then he found he himself was weeping as he ran. Doom, 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 the drum beats rolled behind, mournful now and slow. Doom, they ran on, the light grew before them, great shafts pierced the roof. They ran swifter, they passed into the hall, bright with daylight from its high windows in the east. 
they fled across it, though its huge broken doors they passed, and suddenly before the great gates opened an arch of blazing light. There was a guard of orcs crouching in the shadows behind the great doorpost, towering on either side, but the gates were shattered and cast down. Aragorn smote to the ground the captain that stood in its path, and the rest fled in terror of his wrath. The company swept past them and took no heed of them. Out of the gates they ran and sprang down the huge age-worn steps, the threshold of Moria. Thus at last they came beyond hope under sky and felt the wind on their faces. They did not halt until they were out of bowshot from the walls. Dimril Dale lay before them. The, shadowy of the shadow of the misty mountains lay upon it, but eastward there was a golden light on the land. It was but one hour after noon. The sun was shining, the clouds were white and high, they looked back, dark yawned archway of the gates under the mountain shadow, faint and far beneath the earth rolled, and the slow drum beats doom. A thin black smoke trailed out, nothing else was to be seen. The dale all around was empty, doom. Grief at last wholly overcame them. They wept along, some standing in silence, some cast upon the ground. Doom, doom. The drum beats faded. He's gone, man. He's gone. What'd you think of that chapter, brother? That was like, yeah, like you said, the climax of this first novel, really. Uh, to talk about what we had mentioned about the importance of Gandalf's blade and why I thought it was kind of cool, just to kind of go back and talk about this, it says, There was a ringing clash and a stab of white fire. The Balrog fell back and its sword flew up in molten fragments. So when the like the Balrog sword like a flame and like how big this damn sword was, you guys remember how large the Balrog was like characterized in the novel and also how it large it showed on screen. Its huge fire sword clanged off Gandalf's elven sword and the fire sword sharded and fragmented and basically Gandalf's sword broke the Balrog sword. So that was badass in and of itself. That's yeah, what I wanted to cool. talk about there about the importance of you know uh, elven. Uh, weapons I guess and not just their uh, not the swords but there's also other things that come into play later on uh, as we continue on our journey here but in terms of the the chapter itself there was a lot of stuff I think they made that one stand in that that uh, tomb room I guess I can call it and that's when you first started to see something was wrong because remember Gandalf was like flung back you know, nailed like fall down the stairs and he kind of lost a little bit of his like strength there and he's like ah, I don't know what the hell that was <laughs> and then you know we talk about um when, when Legolas finally sees what it is, he, he's like, yeah, the, the Balrog. And, and Gimli tells him that's a, like Durin's Bane. So this is, and this, we actually get it characterized how uh, devastating and how deathly a Balrog is ju in just a little bit here. I'm not sure if it's in this chapter we're about to read or the following chapter. It's definitely here today because I, I, I wrote down the passage uh, where I want to read it. But this thing is so, so deadly. And what I, what I liked about with how they did it in the novel here in in a way for me in the film and I, we'll talk about more when the differences come up but it almost looked like Gandalf had a chance at getting away if he just like ran faster after he turned his back on the Balrog here in the novel it's just like nah man he grabbed his rip right around his knee and he flew back so like there was no no uh, attempt like there was like nothing he could have done uh, he did everything he could to save the rest of the, the fellowship and just accepted his own fate which was awesome also another part here too I think that people it's easy to overlook is that when he he came down with a staff on the bridge and not only did the bridge break his staff broke in half too so he was like all the rest of the magic he had in that staff to make this last stand here on the bridge of Kaza doom so there's a lot of really cool important parts of this uh really that you know without gandalf here this 
this journey doesn't end well from the mines of Moria. I'll say that. Because uh, who knows, you know, maybe even if they were able to outrun it and get out, like maybe the Balrog comes out of the mines and it's in like the, the open world now. And now who knows what kind of hell it can unleash. So, yeah, that, that's just some of my takeaways on that chapter. I thought it was really cool, very action-packed, and finally got something that like kind of made your eyes pop on paper. So, uh, I don't know. What did, what did you think about it? Yeah, one thing I want to bring up is I think it's... Uh... I, like how smart of that was Gandalf like he realized even with how one could probably make the argument he's one of the most powerful ones in that group right there like I, I you can make the argument he's one of the most powerful ones in that group and he even knew there's no one in that group that can match that Balrog even himself so how smart was that to collapse the bridge knowing like this is the only way like, unfortunately, I have to collapse this bridge. Like, that's the only way to, like, save everyone and get them out of here. Like, this is just what you have to do. Like, he knew he couldn't take that thing on one-on-one. There is no one in that group that could beat that thing. And uh, I just thought it was super smart uh, what he chose to do. Almost like fighting uh, statistically. Like, you know, in the words of Tony Stark, you know, when he fought uh, Thanos. You know, we're not trying to uh, take this guy one-on-one. We're not trying to dance with this guy. Let's just get the glove and go. Like, he was just trying to, you know, collapse that bridge and make sure it stopped. So that was, like, my big takeaway there. But, yeah, it was an action-packed chapter. Um, and I I think at this moment, you know, we'll talk about other stuff later when we get to it. But this is the first big hard-hit-home loss for the group. Like, this is the... You know, you just lost one of your star guys. Like, yeah, Aragorn's badass. Legolas is badass. Gimli does what he can. <laughs> Boromir, Boromir is badass. But there was, like, you basically just lost your quarterback right now. Like, that's kind of what you did. And, you know, I think this is their one shock hit. And I, I do say... It was really big on Aragorn on how he stepped up in a way that he did at this point because this is that big shock to the group, man. And that's just kind of what I took away from that. What do you think about as far as like as far as like casualties to the group? Like how bad do you think this affected the group for the time being? It was a big loss. Like I I don't think you can just make the argument that he's one of the strongest, you know, characters in the group i think he is the strongest and then you know and i would say likely the second most important and the only reason i say a second most important is because of the bloodline of a certain person in the group that like would mm-hmm. come to you know bring you know balance almost in a way to middle earth you know if, if everything goes the way that it needs to go so you know he's for sure the most powerful and for sure to me at the very least the second most important because he has all the knowledge he has a, a shitload of strength he has the ability to, you know, he's he's traveled more across this land, and who knows how old he is, you know. But the elves hold him in high regard. Like we're gonna hear about it, you know, coming here in the next chapters about like, hey, like I really wish to speak with him, you know. Like, like then this is like one of the, you know, elven lords, <laughs> you know. So like, <laughs> it's just it, it's a devastating loss. This is like the biggest loss they could have really taken outside of potentially one, you know. And even that, it, you could draw an yeah. argument either way. So yeah, it was a huge loss. Yeah. And with that, man, I'll let you take it to the next chapter, brother. Sounds good. So going to the next chapter, it's Lothlorien, and this chapter has a you know has a few things that I took away from it. 
you know, they have to get away from the exit of Moria. And so they're kind of keep traveling through. But they realize that Frodo and Sam are kind of lagging behind because they both have injuries. And so to kind of detail a little bit about the, uh, the injuries that they have, I'm going to talk about here that says, uh, While Gimli and the you know, two younger hobbits kindled a fire of brush and firwood and drew water, Aragorn tended Sam and Frodo. Sam's wound was not deep, but it looked ugly, and Aragorn's face was grave as he examined it. After a moment, he looked up with relief. Good luck, Sam. Many have received worse than this in payment for slaying their first orc. The cut is not poisoned, as the wounds of orc blades too often are. It should heal well when I have tended it. Bathe it when Gimli has heated the water. And then he opened his pouch and drew out some withered leaves. They are dry, and some of their future is gone. But here I have still some of the leaves of Athelis that I gathered near Weathertop. Crush one in water, wash the wound clean, and I will bind it. Now it is your turn, Frodo. I am all right, said Frodo, reluctant to have his garments touched. All I needed was some food and a little rest. No, said Aragorn. We must have a look and see what the hammer and the anvil have done to you. I still marvel that you are alive at all. Gently he stripped off Frodo's old jacket and worn tunic and gave a gasp of wonder. Then he laughed. The silver corslet shimmered before his eyes like light upon a rippling sea. Carefully he took it off and held it up, and the gems on it glittered like stars, and the sound of the shaken rings was like a tinkle of rain in a pool. Look, my friends, he called, here's a pretty hobbit skin to wrap an elven princeling in. If it were known that hobbits had such hides, all the hunters of Middle-earth would be riding to the Shire. And all the arrows of all the hunters in the world would be in vain, said Gimli, gazing at the male in wonder. It is a mithril coat. Mithril, I have never seen or heard tell of one so fair. Is this the coat that Gandalf spoke of? Then he undervalued it, but it was well given. Now, I often wondered what you and Bilbo were doing so close in his little room, said Mary. Bless the old hobbit. I love him more than ever. I hope we get a chance of telling him about it. And all that was left on Frodo was a dark and blackened bruise on his right side and under his breast. So, like, that that chainmail really took the brunt of everything and left, like, a mortal, like, what about done, like, a normally, a mortally, you know, wound, uh, mortally, I guess I could say, it could have killed him, right? And it ended up becoming just like a bruise. So I thought that was pretty cool. And so they are making their way for the woods of Lothlorien. And in here, I actually have a uh, foreshadow, I think, of what future beholds Boromir. And so for me, it's on page 379. It's like the third to last paragraph. It says, A plain road, though it led through a hedge of swords, said Boromir. By strange paths has this company been led, and so far to evil fortune. Against my will we passed under the shades of Moria to our loss. And now you must enter the golden wood, you say. But of that perilous land we have heard in Gondor. And it is said few come out who once go in. And of that few, none have escaped unscathed. Say not unscathed, but if you say unchanged... Then maybe you will speak the truth, said Aragorn. But lore wanes in Gondor, Boromir, if in the city of those who once were wise they now speak evil of Lothlorien. Believe what you will, there is no other way for us, unless you would go back to Moria Gate, or scale the pathless mountains, or swim the great river all, great river all alone. Then lead on, said Boromir, but it is perilous. Perilous indeed, said Aragorn. Fair and perilous, but only evil need fear it, or those who bring some evil with them. Follow me. So to me, that kind of foreshadows, you know, uh, a little bit about because there's who bring evil with them. You know, maybe the the darkest parts of certain members of this party, they, those people will need to fear 
what happens in Lothlorien in the woods here. So definitely thought that that was pretty important to highlight, especially what happens at the end of the first movie or in the first chapter of the second book, just to give a little teaser there. So I thought that kind of you know detailed that. Uh, so they end up going into the woods of Lothlorien. They come across a few elves. They basically tell them that they're going to take them to their big city, but they've got to blindfold Gimli because they don't they won't usually let dwarves pass at all. It's against their custom to let dwarves pass at all. And Gimli throws a big fit and says, you're not going to blindfold me. Uh, and then Aragorn's like, listen, we'll all get blindfolded. And Gimli's like, no, that's not necessary. All I ask, if you're going to blindfold me, blindfold Legolas the elf too. And Legolas like throws a big fit. And then Aragorn's like, no, we're all going to get blindfolded. That way it's fair for everybody. So they end up allowing a dwarf to pass into the woods for the first time since the days of Durin, which is like really, it's just crazy, you know. And even the when they get to the the people that are important in this forest, you know, they even mentioned like maybe this is the the sign that you know old friendships are going to be you know forged anew again. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so the elves took. They, they, we also find out you know towards the end of this chapter as like because a lot of this is just them traversing the different parts of the woods. You know, going through it, you're getting led over stuff. You know, I thought it was kind of cool. One of the parts they say like they tied a rope over one end of the river, and Legos is able to like, kind of tightrope walk it, no problem. But they end up having to tie it a, a different rope above it and another one up the top, so that way like the hobbits can hold on to something while they have it underneath their feet too and get across the river. And uh, you know, eventually, it, all this really is is them talking about how they're getting through the woods. But one important part of them getting through the woods is is when they get to a, a certain part of it, the other the other part the other elves that kind of went on ahead came back to report that they took out most of the orc horde that was pursuing the company and they made mention of another creature that they did not shoot because they could not tell if that creature was good or evil and that's a, a big moment too for who that is and who's been kind of following them that uh, Frodo was, was able to hear way back in, in the mines and even kind of heard it when him and Gimli were walking alone for a little bit as well too so thought that was pretty cool that they made mention of that and then just the last takeaway I have from this chapter, I'm going to read the last paragraph here on page 395 in my novel. Uh, it says, uh, at, the foot, at the hill's foot, Frodo found Aragorn standing still, silent as a tree. But in his hand was a small golden bloom of Eleanor, and a light was in his eyes. He was wrapped in some fair memory, and as Frodo looked at him, he knew that he beheld things as they once had been in this same place. For the grim years were removed from his face of Aragorn, and he seemed clothed in white, a young lord, tall and fair, and he spoke words in the elvish tongue to one whom Frodo could not see. Arwen, Venemelda Namari, he said, and he drew a breath, and returning out of his thought, he looked at Frodo and smiled. Here is the heart of Elvendom on earth, he said, and here my heart dwells ever, unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I. Come with me. And taking Frodo's hand in his, he left the hill of Saren Amroth and came there never again as living man. So that was kind of like, that guy actually gave me chills when I'm just reading that there. So that's the last time Aragorn ever stepped foot in that one place that he considered like Elvendom on earth and like, like one of the most like pure and sanctuarial places that he's ever been to. It says he never once stepped foot there again as a living man. So thought that was pretty cool to detail, something that's easy to miss. But those are the big takeaways I have from that chapter. What are some of the things that you have? <laughs> the one, I think you nailed it, man. That's pretty much everything I had. The one takeaway I had uh, that's different isn't really important at all, but I still want to say it. It's just basically the elves are giving Gimli shit. 
And the last paragraph on my page is 356. It's probably different than yours, but Legolas is basically saying how he breathes so loud they could have shot him in the dark. He says, yes, they're elves, said Legolas. And they say that you breathe so loud that they could shoot you in the dark. <laughs> and they're just like, dude, like you can definitely... I think in the movie, we'll talk about differences later, but as we saw in like the movie part one we talked about last week, there's definitely like upplay that a lot more of like how the elves don't get along with the dwarves because of the whole like Hobbit history and stuff. But definitely you can see a little bit in the novel here how the elves are definitely giving Gimli shit here. Like, you, no, you better go through blindfolded if you're walking. <laughs> and then uh, last takeaway is, you know... Um, Haldir like tells the group they can feel the power of the Lady of the Wood, which is coming up soon. And I'll let you take it away for our last chapter today, man. Sounds like a plan to me. Uh, this last chapter is called The Mirror of Galadriel. And there's a few big moments in here that I have that we're going to go over. So, you know, again, they kind of keep walking through and they come to the city of Karas Galadon. It's the city of uh, Galadriel where Lord Celeborn and Galadriel, the Lady of Lorien, live. And these are two very important characters, especially uh, Galadriel, who's called the Lady of Lorien. Uh, we, they end up coming across them finally, and Aragorn has to give them the news that Gandalf didn't make it out of Moria. And this is where, like I said, it's kind of important. You kind of see a little bit of how high the elves hold Gandalf in esteem, because she said, I really wish to speak with him. I can't see any part of his path. Like, it's this dark to me, and she has some level power of foresight. You know, because she, you know, she is very comparable to Elrond. Honestly, she's more powerful than Elrond too, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. You know, an item that she possesses. Um, but so she can't even see his path, and that's when Aragorn has to tell her, like, yeah, like he fell. He's not. He's not coming back, man. He's not coming back. So, which is kind of funny. But anyways, uh, <laughs> we also find out here in this. I'll find the, the the passage later on. But one of the biggest parts that I wanted to mention is that. Legolas calls the Balrog the most dangerous enemy to the elves outside of Sauron. So that, that's what I was talking about earlier, of how devastating this Balrog really is. And how Gandalf really took one for the team, sacrificed himself, and saved not just a company, but maybe saved a lot of Middle-earth from a big danger. Um, <laughs> so I just thought yeah. that was crazy. So of all the things in Middle-earth period, there's only one thing that's more dangerous than the Balrog, and that's Sauron himself. So they're like, fuck Sauron, fuck the orcs, fuck the Urukai, fuck the trolls, fuck the goblins, fuck the Nazgul, <laughs> fuck the ringwraiths. It's all about the Balrog and Sauron up in this bitch. But uh, so I thought that was a pretty important part there, and I'll find exactly the, like that that here passage in just a second. But also we learned that uh, Galadriel is the one who first summoned the White Council to Middle Earth. And she actually wanted Gandalf to be the one who governed it, not Saruman. And that is something that I think a lot of people may have forgotten or just read past and didn't really pick up on. But that's huge. Because imagine the difference that could have taken place if Gandalf was the one leading the White Council the entire time. I uh, definitely thought that was important and worth notating. And then uh, another one I've got here is on page 408 in my book in the second paragraph. I'll go ahead and read this passage real quick. So 408, second paragraph. It says... I will look, said Frodo, and he climbed on the pedestal and bent over the dark water. At once the mirror cleared, and he saw a twilight land. Mountains loomed dark in the distance against a pale sky. A long gray road wound back out of sight. Far away a figure came slowly down the road. 
faint and small at first, but growing larger and clearer as it approached. Suddenly, Frodo realized that it reminded him of Gandalf. He almost called aloud the wizard's name, and then he saw that the figure was clothed not in gray, but in white, in a white that shone faintly in the dusk, and in its hand there was a white staff. The head was bowed so he could not see a face, and presently the figures turned aside around a bend in the road and went out of the mirror's view. Doubt came into Frodo's mind. Was this a vision of Gandalf on one of his many lonely journey, journeys long ago? Or was it Saruman? And so I thought that was cool because the mirror of Gladiol can do three things. It can tell things that have happened in the past, it can tell things that are currently happening, and we can tell things that have yet come to pass. And so you've kind of got to guess which one of those things Frodo just saw. I thought that was really damn cool. One of the one of my favorite parts that's very low key that they added and, and did a really good job with on that end. Uh, also, we learned that, you know, like I said, we were going to come to this point here, there's an important item that Galadriel has. We learned that Galadriel has one of the three elven rings of power. Where those three were supposed to be hidden and you know no one is going to know where they were, Galadriel has it on her finger and she has this huge you know level of power that she has on her own with that ring. And I thought it was also important to note, say, and this is kind of the last takeaway that I have for this chapter, is that Frodo, he wants to give the ring to Galadriel and she considers it, but ends up passing the test and she refuses the ring. So that was that was the last takeaway I kind of had from that chapter there. I'll turn it over to you and you go ahead and give me your takeaways from this chapter. Yeah, no, it was, uh, I, think, I think you nailed it on that. Um, side note, because basically all my takeaways are yours. Um, one thing I do want to bring up about Galadriel that a lot of people don't realize uh, I talked about her in that TikTok series that we talked about with Elvish language because I don't think people really understand how old and how powerful she is. Only her and Elrond and very few other elves, not even Glorfindel, speaks in Quenya regularly. Quenya is for the very high elves only, which is basically the old Latin language that died out in Middle Earth from where um, basically they stayed in their own realm. <clears throat> and <clears throat> not even Legolas, Glorfindel, Arwen, Aragorn can speak it um, just because of like how his bloodline is and he can switch back and forth. It's really only Elrond and, and, and Galadriel. There are some other ones, but they're not very spoke about very often mainly they're only spoken about in the silmarillion if you look that up but that's how high of a level she is so this isn't just some regular elf they just ran into in the woods like if anyone's really above elrond it's her and you can't really say she is like they're basically on the same level but that's that's how much influence and power she has uh, but yeah, that's my only takeaway, man. And it just, uh, you know, we're starting to get into the good stuff here. Starting to get into the good stuff, man. Honestly, like, I disagree with you. I think she's above Elrond, and I don't think it's very close. Like, she has an elven ring you of power. So? She has an elven ring of power. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like, they entrusted her yeah. with one of the, the, the elven rings of power that was supposed to stay hidden and not found, because those are the only ones that Sauron hasn't got his hands on, right? He's got his hands on mm -hmm. the, the dwarf rings. He's got his hands on the nine human rings. He's 
you know, obviously the One Ring is trying to make its way back to him. And the only ones that are eluding his, his grasp are the elves, and she has one of them. So, yeah, I would definitely say that she's well yeah, above. I guess you can say. Yeah, Elrond's been... The only reason I was saying Elrond is probably on the same level as her, keep in mind, like, Elrond was there in the actual battle where a sealed door could have destroyed the ring. So, I mean, he's been around a long time, too. It's not like he's just some chump. But, yeah, <laughs> you're right. Like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with Galadriel either. But, uh, yeah, I mean, let's put it this way. Like, Galadriel and Elrond are even way above Glorfindel, and he's respected in his own right. So, I mean... <laughs> Legolas is basically a high schooler <laughs> compared to like even like comparing the people like that. So it's just really cool, man. It's good stuff. Um, any like debates or any questions you had about these chapters here today? There's a few things I just want to like. I found the passages that I want to detail specifically mm -hmm. on my page when I was talking about the uh, Balrog being at, like the second worst enemy to the elves outside of uh, Sauron. This is on page 399. It's like the sec third to last paragraph says uh an evil of the ancient world is seen such as i have never seen before said aragorn it was both a shadow and a flame strong and terrible it was a balrog of morgoth said legolas of all elf banes the most deadly save the one who sits in the dark tower there's the evidence right there like how important and how devastating this balrog is and then talking about the passage i was mentioning with galadriel wanting Gandalf to be the one that led the White Council. This is from her own words here on page 400 in my book. Last paragraph says, I it was who summoned the White Council. And if my designs had not gone amiss, it would have been governed by Gandalf the Grey. And then mayhap things would have gone otherwise. But even now, there is hope left. So she wanted Gandalf to be the one to run the show for the White Council. She's the one that first summoned them to Middle-earth and then, you know, they ended up... Saruman was the one that ended up getting chosen or whatever. But now the last thing I'll, I'll mention here in this before we kind of go into debates and things of that nature is uh, this is talking about her with that, that elven ring of power. It's on my... And it's page 409. It says, She lifted up her white arms and spread out her hands towards the east in a gesture of rejection and denial. Irendil, the evening star, most beloved of the elves, shone clear above. So bright was it that the figure of the elven lady cast a dim shadow on the ground. Its rays glanced upon a ring about her finger. It glittered like polished gold overlaid with silver light, and a white stone in it twinkled as if the even star had come down to rest upon her hand. Frodo gazed at the ring with awe, for suddenly it seemed to him that he understood. Yes, she said, divining his thought. It is not permitted to speak of it, and Elrond could not do so. But it cannot be hidden from the ring bearer and one who has seen the eye. Verily, it is in the land of Lorien, upon the finger of Galadriel, that one of the three remains. This is Nenya, ring of adamant, and I am its keeper. So that's just talking about one of the elven rings of power on Galadriel's hand there. So I thought that was pretty important, but outside of that, you know, they actually did a good job in the film because when he offers her that ring she kind of goes into that sort of speech stuff it made it more dramatic in the film which is great you know because obviously you want to see some crazy things on screen it almost made her seem like dark and scary for a little bit and in the, in the book it was more a little bit downplayed than that it almost seemed like she was scoffing at the notion but had like a, a little bit of temptation in there as well and you know it even says that she passed the test it says i passed the test i will diminish and go into the west and remain galadriel so thought that was pretty cool there 
but yeah, those are just the last things I wanted to detail with my, my the actual passages that supported you know my my thoughts on it. But uh, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What debates do you have for the day? And let's, let's get rolling with those. I mean, I, I mean, I really don't have any because I was thinking like, do you? The question is, could Gandalf, if he was prepared to fight the Balrog, do you think he could beat him on his own? Or do you think he knew there's no way to ever beat this Balrog? The question is, the debate I have, do you think anyone in Middle-earth, one-on-one, besides Sauron himself, uh, do you think anyone in Middle-earth could beat the Balrog by themselves? Well, it's funny, because... I- I can't say what I want to say because it comes into play right. later on. <laughs> Leaving that so, out. like, yes, I do think someone could defeat the Balrog on one because it happens. I'll say that. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything <laughs> other other than that. Um, you know, I yeah, but I'm not gonna. It's it's tough to get into that question, right? Um, I don't know. I think that there may be some high elves that without Gandalf we'll leave this we'll do this then well, you, you, do you think anyone well, you besides said, Gandalf well, could be the what's Balrog? interesting is the way you had mentioned the question you asked me you said do you think Gandalf could have taken it one-on-one like at, at the best yeah. level and so like you know it's like well kind of <laughs> but you know but I'm not gonna you know go into yeah. that uh but if you were gonna ask me if there's anyone else I could have taken it yeah I'm sure I'm sure like maybe one of the high elf warriors, maybe Glorfindel has an op- opportunity at it. You know, the, the thing is, is like there's different powers of different elves, right? Galadriel is like one of the most powerful elves, but you don't see her like in a in a one on one battle situation. Like there's like warrior elves <laughs> that are separate. Like El- Elrond, possibly. You know, I think he has got a shot at it. Uh, there's not many. To, to, to kind of put it simply, I don't think there's many that could have taken the Balrog one on one, and I don't think there's any like human men that could have taken it one-on-one for sure yeah like i i think that's my big question like do you think like even aragorn has a chance no no being like a, a man not at all i mean gandalf even said it he's like this is beyond any of your abilities to take like he's straight up he straight up said it he's like y'all y'all have no chance here get the hell out get the hobbits to safety i'm gonna go ahead and do what i can do here but like this is beyond any of yours ability to handle so no i don't think there's any like human man that could have taken the ball rock. I don't think it would be close. I think it, that thing would have been like a wrecking ball, like a hot knife through butter. <laughs> so, yeah, man, I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else you wanted to say at that part before I get into my debate, or what do you think? No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, and we won't get into what happens later, but I think in that state of where Gandalf was, um. I guess I'll just say, yeah, I think he could probably take it on one-on-one, but in that state, I think he was worried more about the group. Kind of like the whole Albus Dumbledore and Harry thing, like, you know, let me stop this fight because I'm having to worry about you guys in the corner. Like, get across this fucking bridge so I don't have to deal with you anymore. (laughs) That's basically what was going on. Um, But yeah, that's my thing. Like, as much as I would want to say, like, that would be badass, like, you know, like slaying a dragon or something, right? Like, if Aragorn beat the Balrog, that would be sick. But unfortunately, even though he's a really badass hero of the story, it's a major difference between taking on Urukai 
and take it on a fucking Balrog. So yeah, it was, it's like, you know, that doesn't even compete, man. It's like peewee eighth grade football and the NFL. Like, no, <laughs> no, sir. So yeah, no, no, I agree with you 100%. What about you, man? What's your debate of the day? So I've actually got two of them. My first debate is kind of similar to yours, uh, but my aspect of the debate is, what, what, in your mind, is there any way that Gandalf could have escaped from that and still you know, been a part of the company? Or was there really no chance in that he did the only thing that was available to him and, and that, was, that was pretty much it? Like, Do you think he could have done anything else to make it so he came out of it whether he was in a good shape or not or they basically had to like like you know bring him back not bring him back to life but like they had to like heal him up and like he had to get some like heavy rest after finally casting it aside was there anything that he could have done to stay alive and stay part of the fellowship uh, after that confrontation with the balrog in your opinion see the issue is like i don't want to bring up stuff from later on <laughs> but i would say no because I mean, we saw how it even used its whip to drag him down by the knees. Like, I mean, it wasn't like he really had any chance there. And I mean, I don't want to bring anything up later on, but the Balrog's body alone is basically filled with flame. Like, I feel like even attacking it is going to burn your body. Like, I mean, you're basically all in at that point. Like, I, I, you're basically all in. Like, I don't think there was any way i don't i don't i can't think of any situation where he would i mean maybe if he like found a way to like shield his body and the balrog just fell alone but it didn't happen that way and the balrog had that whip and knew i mean i'm sure he predicted it was going to probably try to drag him down like i mean there was uh an intellectual element to that that gandalf has uh, just the whole point of foreshadowing how he feared going there in the first place. He wasn't fearing the orcs. <laughs> like, he wasn't fearing that. That's not what was going on. Uh, I just, I think, in a way, he basically knew this was going to be his fate, is what I, I, I actually feel. I feel like he knew this would be his fate, and that's why he never wanted to go there. But this is just part of his journey. Um, you know, just like we were discussing a minute ago, there's no one, I feel like, in that group of nine that could have even done anything besides him. And he even knew he couldn't fight this the way he wanted to, so he had to collapse that bridge. So I just don't find any possible scenario where he doesn't come out of this situation fatally like wounded the thing is you're fighting something that realistically should take an army to bring down is, is what's going on so uh, what's your thoughts yeah I, I tend to agree with you and i'm actually going to go ahead and read a passage here that supports like my thoughts on this as well before even the last stand at the bridge it says the passage was lit by no shaft and was utterly dark they groped their way down a long flight of steps and looked back but they could see nothing except high above them the, flaint, the faint glimmer of the wizard's staff. He seemed to be still standing on guard by the closed door. Frodo breathed heavily and leaned against Sam, who put his arms about him. They stood peering up the stairs into the darkness. Frodo thought he could hear the voice of Gandalf above, muttering words that ran down the sloping roof with a sighing echo. He could not catch what was said. The walls seemed to be trembling. 
Every now and again, the drum beats throbbed and rolled. Doom. Doom. Suddenly, at the top of the stair, there was a stab of white light. There was a dull rumble and a heavy thud. The drum beats broke out wildly. Doom, boom, doom, boom. And then stopped. Gandalf came flying down the steps and fell to the ground in the midst of the company. Well, well, that's over, said the wizard, struggling to his feet. I have done all that I could, but I have met my match and have nearly been destroyed. But don't stand here. Go on. You will have to do without light for a while. I am rather shaken. Go on, go on. Where are you, Gimli? Come ahead with me. Keep close behind, all of you. So in that, like, there's like two confrontations he had with that Balrog, and he said, I've nearly been destroyed. So yeah, no, I don't think there is any way, shape, or form that Gandalf was taking that thing on and coming out the other side uh, with, with the rest of the Fellowship. I think he, exactly what you said, did the only, he, he hell married it at the last moment. He called the only play up that he thought might work at the sacrifice of himself to the, the betterment of everyone else around him. Decided to, you know, take the sacrifice fly and that, that was it, man. Like he was, he was already saying, he's like, I was almost destroyed there. And then, you know, the last stand on the bridge, like his blade broke the Balrog's blade and that was cool. But that thing, man, is shadow and flame. And that's, that's tough. That's a tough one. Like we said, it was characterized as the elf's greatest enemy outside of Sauron himself. So yeah, I don't think there was any way he's coming out of that. I don't know what else he could have done. You know, there's I thought you're right. He, that was the fate that was meant for him. And he uh, he embraced it, so we give him the credit for embracing his fate. Uh, that Think was about this real quick. Sorry, not to interrupt you. I just want to throw this in there. What if they never even made it to the bridge? Like they would be effed if they never made it to the bridge and that thing came out. They're royally effed. Like luckily Gandalf survived that little stuff there at the beginning because of you know if they don't make it to the bridge. Like, you're basically trapped there like they were in the beginning. Like, you're trapped. That thing's going to come in after the trolls and orcs if you happen to survive the ambush there. Hopefully you do. It's like that one-shot kill in a video game. Well, I'm glad I made it through phase one, two, and three. I forgot there's an act four that's about to beat my ass right here. (laughs) Their only hope was that bridge, man. If that bridge wasn't there, they would be royally screwed. On top of that, you know, to, to support what you're saying there, Gandalf is the only one that has been through Moria and knew of the passages and how to get through it. So let's say, like, Gandalf fell in that first exchange with the Balrog and there was no more Gandalf. They wouldn't know what the hell to do or where to go. <laughs> and so at that point, they would be screwed. You know, they would be completely screwed. So, yeah, no, that, that kind of closes out the first debate that I have. The second one I want to ask is, what do you think would have happened if Galadriel accepted the one ring from Frodo and she took it and now she's got one of the elven rings and the ring of power. That's a bit of a stretch because I just don't see it as something ever happening because she already has an elven ring and she, um, you know, didn't choose to use it like the power of men did that became wraiths. Um, but, um, hmm, <laughs> I guess you're royally screwed then. <laughs> I guess that's what happens. I guess you, you basically get a queen, just like she said in the book. Yeah, I will become a queen. <laughs> like almost like, 
then you know talk about the cards being stacked against you you basically have a true sauron in play at that point but almost like how you talked about in your game of thrones rewrite like danny became the ice queen <laughs> like i mean that's basically what's going on you have a, a sauron number two in play um but now you have sauron one that's trying to regenerate his power through the all-seeing eye but now you haven't actually Sauron too, like that was there during a sealed ors time in the second and the second age. So you really have a problem. Um, <laughs> I think the world's screwed at that point. I mean, you're talking about arguably one of the highest elves that there is. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, man. I think it's game. I think it's game check match <laughs> at that point. Like I think. Yeah, I mean, there's so many situations in this novel where one thing goes wrong. Imagine this. Not only... <laughs> wow. Talk about really getting effed over. Like if Gandalf falls, sacrifices himself, and then she takes the ring and all is lost anyways. I mean, there's nothing... I mean, you're talking about one of the most powerful elves, if not the most powerful, with that. I mean, I don't know, man. I think I think it's game check match. What about you? Yeah, I think that you know, I think one of the passages in the book kind of puts it very, like you said. There's so many things that could go wrong. Uh, that you know, she said like the, the, your task kind of falls upon the blade of a knife right now. You you edge but just a little, and the whole thing falls apart. You know, she said it herself. You know, so here's my thing: is that I don't know if anyone else can use the ring as a weapon the way Sauron can. So even if she takes the ring, I think she becomes more of just like another powerful entity. Uh, I just don't think you can't, it wouldn't destroy Sauron. That's the thing. So Sauron would still be there mm -hmm. and you just have to contend with like two things. Now you have to like, like that would be yeah. one of the biggest is that I almost feel it would be a waging war between, you know, both Lorien and Mordor against each other. But I don't think the, elves would follow her because they realize that you, you took the power for yourself so at that point you'd kind of have all of the the spies and enemies like the the minions of the enemy talking about sauron coming towards her by themselves she's got one elven ring of power you got the ring of power itself the one that you know ensnares all the rest it'd be interesting it's almost like you're gonna have like a saruman times four <laughs> like that that's basically right. it in my opinion <laughs> she'd either have to like create her own army of like evil minions to battle the other it'd be like it'd be like fighting two evils against each other while the rest of the world just like shit we're kind of we're kind of screwed one way or the other guys i don't know what we're gonna do here <laughs> you know um <laughs> yeah I, I obviously i don't think anything good would have came from it like there's no way she takes the ring and then everything's all like hunky dory and we're all you know singing kumbaya at the end of it like something bad's gonna happen she kind of knew it said in the place of the dark lord you would have a queen and you know that like you said there so i don't think that anything good comes from the situation if she takes the ring i don't think that it helps them defeat Sauron at all. I think it just adds another <laughs> headache, another problem to their plate. Because now you'd have Sauron, you'd have Galadriel, and you'd have Saruman all doing some evil shit. <laughs> and uh, just, I think they would lay waste. You know, that would almost be like World War Three in the real world. You know, just like, everyone's got nukes ready to aim at each other and it's going to blow up the whole earth and call it a day, man. I don't know. I think I don't think anything good comes from it. But that's that's my uh, my thoughts on it. 
Yeah, man. I mean, I feel like the only thing that could beat her is if there was like another ring and Gandalf like found a way to take it if he was still around <laughs> at this point. Like you have to fight evil with evil at that point. Like I don't feel like any I don't feel that any power could stop that unless it was the same type of power. I I don't I don't know. I think the cards are just too stacked against you at that point. That's like trying to come back in a game and you're down by 42 <laughs> not even tom brady not even tom brady can save you now <laughs> it's like i don't know man i don't know man uh but no it's a good question but on that note yeah man uh you want to give us some final thoughts and kind of close out today I thought it's kind of funny you mentioned the Tom Brady thing because of those who don't know, uh, Chase is actually a Falcons fan and he knows all about Tom Brady coming back from the edge of defeat to to uh, take the win home. So I thought that was uh, very fitting of you to, to bring that up. Uh, the other thing I'll say here is I'm actually going to read the exact quote we were talking about about the edge of the knife. Uh, this is from this is Gladriel to Frodo. It says, I will not give you counsel saying do this or do that. For not doing or contriving, nor in choosing between this course or another, can I avail. But only in knowing what was and is, and in part also what shall be, I will say this to you. Your quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains while all the company is true. So yeah, just you know, that's the exact quote that leads evidence to what we were saying, that any, anything that, that is the smallest deviant from the, the course of the right path, and this, this all goes to shit. So uh, that's pretty much it. I don't know if you want to say anything real quick before I close this out for the day. It's up to you, but uh, that's all I got. Yeah, I'll just say a couple things. One is, uh, of course, Tom Terrific couldn't even let me enjoy <laughs> this first year I was looking forward to with him being gone. Thank you, Tom, for coming back and running train on my entire South Division. I really appreciate it. Matt Ryan, good luck in Indiana, man. You gave us a good run. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, now I don't know what's going to happen. But I will say, uh, as you know, Jay Nelly and I are here in Orlando. I am going to try to go to a Tampa game this year. Not because I like the Bucks. I will see them play the Falcons and destroy the Falcons. But at least I can say I get to see Tommy go out with a bang because uh, you got to respect the guy. <laughs> like if or not, got to respect him. Arguably one of the greatest football players of all time. On that note, once again, guys, just thanks for all you do for us, being with us on this ride. Only gets better from here. I know we kind of got into the climax of the fellowship here, and it's just really awesome the way we're really flying through this thing. And um it only gets better because the next one is arguably probably you know the thick of it is what i would say is when we start getting into that book so one more episode there the movie and then uh start getting into that book there but um you guys are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy and i'll let jay nelly close us out sounds like a plan guys and so if this is your first time join us welcome we hope you like what you heard and you decide to stick around uh, if you don't know where to find us, we're on social media and all different avenues. You can find us on Instagram at official ridiculous Patronus. Find us on TikTok at ridiculous Patronus. Find us on Facebook, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Find us on Twitter at RP Factor Fantasy. Snapchat RP Factor Fantasy. We also have our own website as well, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com. You can check out. 
Uh, we're also, you know, if you're looking to kind of figure out where the podcast itself is and how you can follow along, because obviously we want all the subscriptions, all the likes, all the comments, all the reviews that you guys want to want to provide. Uh, you can find us if you have an iPhone on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you have it on Android, you can find us on Spotify, Google Play. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Audible. We're on Amazon Music. We're on Acast. We're on Stitcher. We're on Podbean. We have a YouTube channel as well. Wherever you get your podcasts, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy are there. But we're out for the day because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing, Signing off. off.